0: Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg, and before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month, and whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 1159 p.m. Eastern time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erika.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside.
1: The narcissistic person does not think that what they're doing is a problem. And in fact, they have a really distorted sense of self-appraisal. They think they're great. Narcissism is not a diagnosis. It's a personality style. Dr. Ramani De Rossel, she is the world's leading expert on narcissism. He's a licensed clinical psychologist. Dr. Ramani is an author of several books including Should I Stay or Should I Go?
0: I'm in this relationship with a narcissist. Should I stay or should I go? Many people out there
1: love the narcissistic person in their life, but it is an unhealthy relationship by definition.
0: Can a narcissist ever become not a narcissist? Is there a way to unlearn that?
1: It's pretty rare.
0: I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me Podcast. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I would take a guess and say that a lot of you have experienced anxiety at some point in your lives. Whether it's anxiety in your personal life, professional life, or just in your general day-to-day life, Anxiety is a real thing, and I think we really need to talk about it more. I know like many of you, I've felt ashamed at times to admit when I feel anxious because talking about mental health can be seen as taboo. If you would have told me four years ago that I'd be on a podcast talking to you openly about how I have anxiety and panic attacks, I wouldn't have believed you but I found that being open to solutions and keeping the dialogue open around anxiety makes the topic so much more approachable. That's why I started my therapy sessions with BetterHelp, because I wanted a place where I could talk freely and feel like there's no judgment. So if you're feeling a little anxious or going through a bit of a rough patch at the moment, I really can't recommend therapy enough, and BetterHelp is definitely a great place to start. You can do it online from home, and if you don't feel comfortable with the therapist you've been matched with, you can easily switch for free. I personally switched three times before I found a therapist that I really connected with. It's so easy to get started with just a simple questionnaire. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Just visit betterhelp.com ETM, as an Erica taught me, and you'll get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash E-T-M. So I guess my very first question is, what exactly is a narcissist? Right. So that, that in and of itself is a lot
1: of people don't even know. Like there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about it. So a narcissistic, I would say narcissist is actually a, nar- a person with a narcissistic personality style that is prominent enough that we would notice it. And that would be things like having variable empathy. So it's sort of a misnomer that narcissistic people don't have empathy. Actually, sometimes they do. I almost call it transactional empathy. If they're having a good day, if they need something from you, um, if they're just sort of feeling pumped from having like a, again, a good day, they might actually seem like, oh no, tell me about your day. But it's very inconsistent. It's, it's, Empathy is supposed to be consistent, even if we're not having a good day that we can pop out of the saying, well, this is not this person's fault or problem. I need to be present with them. No, it's, it's really empathy shows up when it works for them. So we'll call it variable empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, egocentricity, very selfish. They can be very controlling. They're very manipulative. It's a constellation of traits that put them at odds with other people if that makes sense. And but but the tricky bit with narcissism is when they do feel safe and admired and valued. Their A game is a triple A game. I mean mm. that, that they're so charming, so charismatic, can command a room. And what throws people off is when It's not that for them. They can be so cruel and mean and manipulative and exploitative and all those things. And that going back and forth between those two things throws people off. And by and large, many other people give them the benefit of the doubt. They go on the basis of that good day. And then they make excuses and say, "Ah, maybe they're just having a bad day. It's not just a bad day. It's really a a healthy person wouldn't have that much fluctuation because it's happening all the time. It's not one bad day. It's three times a day, bad day. And so that's really what narcissism, it's a very egocentric, unempathic, manipulative, entitled, rules don't apply to me, grandiose, and incapable of having close, growth-oriented, mutual relationships.
0: So are there specific scenarios that you could point to that would be red flags that you're dealing with a narcissist. So some
1: of those red flags would be things like, you know, again, red flags are such a tricky business. I think one of the challenges is people like, I want to I want to spot this as soon as possible so I don't get that far down the track. It's not that simple because even the things I'm about to comment on, lots of people notice these things and they go back to what isn't actually an unhealthy position of Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they were feeling anxious in the situation. We do tend to show a lot of grace to people interpersonally, especially if we do have empathy. So some of those red flags, though, could be things like in every conversation, either interrupting a lot or they constantly steer it back to them. I'm going to give you an example of that, okay? I was talking with someone a few weeks back, and this was a person who in many ways seemed like a decent person, and I actually think he was, but my goodness, this dude couldn't talk about anything but himself. No matter what, we had to listen to these meandering tales about his family, and this restaurant he went to, and his travels, and his career, and he simply was incapable of hearing what another person had to say. He just was not capable of it. I didn't spend enough time with him to truly figure out if he was empathic. I've got to tell you, the, that conversational narcissism was enough for me to say, I'm tuning out, and I really don't want to talk to this person again. So that's a great example of me early in the game saying, mm, not interested. And if somebody said, well, wouldn't you want to collaborate with them? I'd say probably not, because if I was putting an odds on this, a bet on this, this person would make any collaboration all about him, probably steal my stuff, And I wouldn't get to shine. So do you understand where I'm going with that, Erica? So it's sort of a, it's the, do I think that guy was narcissistic? I don't know. I didn't spend enough time. But when that red flag was so glaring in a new relationship, that was a sign for me to say, hell no, I'm not doing this. That is a, that was a low stakes thing. I mean, honestly, it it was a work thing, but had that even been a date thing, A person could have said, "Mm, I don't know. This person only talks about themselves and though they're very interesting. This person happened to be very interesting. It was something like, wow, you just can't hold space for another person. I could easily have made excuses for this guy and said, maybe he's socially anxious. Okay, I still don't want to work with you. I'm sorry, you're socially anxious and I hope you work on that. But I am not your shrink. And I don't have enough time left in this life to work this through with you, all right? So so that's a great example of taking a red flag and translating it into a new encounter, just in terms of, I'm just giving you a real example. Other examples could be, obviously, that entitlement. Somebody who is very rude to a server in a restaurant or a valet parker or a hotel staff member. And we all have our moments. We have all been snappy with somebody whose job it was to help us. She kind of needs a few looks at this, right? So if they do it that one time, you might say, okay, filing this away, we're all very tired. You might know like, okay, this person hasn't slept for two days or they've been traveling. But then if it happens again, and it's not under such stretched circumstances, pay attention to that. That kind of imperious walking in, I'm above the rules, sorts of kinds of nonsense, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And I think people need to pay attention to that. Watch how a person drives dangerous, fast, out-of-control driving is associated with narcissism. If you get in a car with someone and they're, they're driving like a jerk, file that away big time. Because that, people say, no, no, I just like to drive like a wild child. I'm like, hmm, you've made your passenger uncomfortable. You're putting other people at risk. Show me the empathy there because I'm real curious where it is. So driving's a great one. If you manage to get into a car with someone, oh, they're just trying to show off for you. Why? Because they need my admiration and validation. Ding, ding, ding. Another red flag. Social media behavior. What are their boundaries like there? Everything solely a... Granted, social media is a very one-sided space, but really that sense of my life is better than... It's sort of this pick-me guy kind of thing. Like, is my life better than everyone else's? Look how cool my lunch is. Just finding bliss and my happy space. So grateful for life in Hawaii. My alarm bells are going off <laughs> when I read that. People are like, no, that's just how people post. Is it? So that to me would be like probably someone I distance from. To me, a red flag isn't a dump and run. It's a step gently backwards out the exit door while sort of looking forward. You know what I'm saying when you're mm-hmm. backing out of a room? It's pay attention. And if that behavior persists, you keep seeing it, then leave if it's early. Red flags really only uh, apply in the early phase of a relationship. If you've known someone for 20 or 25, 30 years, I don't know that you'd call them red flags anymore. You'd call it their behavior. But a lot of people don't know what narcissism is. So as this word kind of gets a lot of steam out there in the world and they're learning what it is, they'll say, oh, now that I'm hearing this, I think my dad might be a narcissist or my mom or my brother or my long-term partner, they aren't red flags anymore. They're simply now taking this behavior that's been making you uncomfortable, but you couldn't really put a name to it. And you thought it was your fault connecting the dots and recognizing, ooh, this is actually a problem.
0: Is this something that you can diagnose? I mean, I like a checklist. I want an exact checklist to understand, is this person a narcissist or not? Is there a test that can be taken?
1: So here's where I'm gonna push back on that, right? Let's use the example I just gave you of the person who couldn't stop talking about himself. I'm telling you point blank, I don't know if this person's narcissistic. All I knew was that, listen, I get paid to sit in a room with somebody and listen to their stuff. If you think I'm going to do that on my off time, you're nuts. I'm absolutely not interested in doing that. If I'm not getting paid, I'm not doing it. Okay? And so this kind of one-sided conversation, I was thinking, anytime you spend with this guy... You're going to have to listen to the him show, right? Does it matter if he's fully narcissistic? I think to me, the question is does it matter? If you're finding that this is not a gratifying, growth oriented, pleasant, balanced encounter, and it's early days, it's a new encounter. Why are you putting yourself back in there unless you personally think you're going to extract something out of it? Maybe you put up with the grandstanding person because they are going to introduce you to someone, right? Be clear on your motives. Be clear on your end game. But the idea of ever having a mutually beneficial friendship with someone like that is actually pretty low. And so I think so many people like, I want the checklist. I need to know why. Why isn't it enough to say this person's behavior is making me really uncomfortable? But to that point, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, commandeering conversations, being contemptuous of other people, being a snob and dismissive in that way, being deeply manipulative, being passive aggressive, always being the victim. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But I think that the thing that people need to learn is because the problem is to really see if a person's narcissistic, you almost need to spend six months with them. At six months, you're now in really deep. You see what I'm saying? So, at six months, and this is why, on average, people who get into any kind of, especially an intimate new relationship with someone, the lucky ones get out, but not for a year or two. And they'll say, I knew something wasn't right. I kept making excuses. I thought it was my fault. But then I was like, "Mm, I can't ignore this. Or the person really did something that wasn't okay. Shady behavior, inappropriate behavior, really took them for granted. And they're like, you know, I'm going to get out while the getting's good. But even then they'll say, I saw those red flags in the first four to six weeks, but it took me one or two years for this pattern for me to see it as consistent enough to say, this isn't okay. The problem is one to two years in, A person now kind of feels an investment in there. For people, some people, it's a full-on trauma-bonded relationship where they're like, okay, I I kind of equate chaos with love. I think it's my fault. I love the good days. Justify, justify. Even a year or two in, a person could already be stuck in that cycle and and they keep doing something called future faking. Either the narcissistic person says... I'm going to go into therapy, okay? I'm going to work on this. Well, you can't expect them to fix it like that. So you give them the three months, the six months. Either they're lying to you about therapy or they're not doing the work or whatever it may be. Now you've put another three to six months in. They'll say, it's all going to be better once I move, once I finish school, once I get this job, once I get this promotion. So they're always dangling the carrot if they want to keep you. And again, any empathic person won't take the hard line of saying, no, I don't like you now. When somebody they kind of care about is saying, give me another three to six months, the vast majority of people will give that three to six months. You can start seeing how in a in the sort of the flick of an eye, this could become 10
0: years. And it's so interesting because as you're speaking, I had actually heard you on a different podcast. And as you described the narcissistic tendencies I realized I used to be in a relationship with a narcissist. And I'm sure a lot of people are listening and having that realization that, as you're describing this, that they are in a relationship with one or have one as a parent or have a friend that's a narcissist or or a boss or something. And what you're saying, too, that really resonated with me is the justifying. I think when I was in a relationship with a narcissist, I kind of justified the bad behavior. It was also... Almost like thinking that the good days were what was representative of him, and the bad days were just a fluke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but it sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, narcissists, it's not just like a one-time event, it's mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily about the scale of how extreme they are on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the lacking empathy, it's more so the repetition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that really accurate?
1: Yeah, so you gotta remember no, this. This personality style. Remember, you used the word a moment, a little while ago. Di- can you diagnose them? We don't even want to talk about diagnosing them, right? Because diagnosis can only really be done by somebody who is a trained, licensed, you know, sealed licensed mental health practitioner, physician who works in mental health or something like that. So. which most people are obviously not. And so narcissism is not a diagnosis. It's a personality style. There's all kinds of personality styles out there. Extroversion is a personality style. Conscientiousness is a personality style. Agreeableness is a personality style. And narcissism is a personality style. And while yes, it is affixed to a personality disorder, that's not what we're talking about. That personality disorder is simply taking that pattern. It ends up in a licensed mental health practitioner's office and they're able to codify it. And even for those of us who are therapists, it takes us three, four months with a patient before we can say, "Mm, wow, I can say definitively, this is narcissistic personality disorder. That's not the issue. The issue is exactly what you said. It's a pattern. And since this personality style of narcissism, it's on a continuum, a spectrum. At the mild level, this is a selfish, emotionally stunted, annoying, superficial, childish person. That's what it is. So it's a person who even when they're 50 is like, how come no one's liking my post? You're thinking you're 50. And the person sounds like they're 20 okay? So there's an immaturity there. Now, one would say, well, what's so bad about that? If this 50-year-old who's obsessing over Instagram is your long-term spouse and cares about childish things and you're trying to do things like plan for retirement, care for elderly parents, feel supported in your own health crises, this person's nowhere to be found. They're still in this very kind of forever emotionally stunted, superficial world. That's its own, and and also inconsistently empathic, rageful, all that things don't go their way. What do you mean I can't have the table looking at the water? I was going to post that, and they'll throw the tantrum. At the extreme, severe end, you are talking about people who are menacing and fear-inducing, and their rage is terrifying, and they're manipulative in a way that could harm your career or your life, and they lie, and they cheat, and they're just mean, mean, somewhat scary people. Obviously, that's very different than some foolish person fooling around on Instagram that's at a point that they really shouldn't be caring about those things, right? So it's a spectrum. But either end of the spectrum, it's a pattern. And like you said, you just assume that the bad days are a fluke. I hate to say it, folks. It's the good days that are a fluke. And that's a hard thing for us to get our head around, especially when we love someone or care about them, because we really want it to work. And that love we have for that person almost sort of trains us to say, la, 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 I'm not seeing that, or that's not that big a deal. We engage in a bunch of processes to move that away so we can maintain the relationship. But there's a danger in doing that because if you keep doing that for three years, five years, 10 years, now you may be married, there may be shared property, you may have children and dismantling this thing becomes much, much more complicated.
0: You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode to claim your free shares through my special link. Just go to Erica slash invest, or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K again, that's Erica slash invest. You mentioned that narcissists, if they're in a relationship, they may promise you I'll change, I'll be better. My question for you then, can a narcissist ever become not a narcissist? Is there a way to unlearn that? It's pretty rare
1: because it's not about learning. It's about personality, right? So a learned behavior would be something like um, leaving your socks on the floor or eating with your mouth open or always being late. Those are learned behaviors, right? And anything can be learned, could be unlearned. Personality is a different monster, right? It's who you are. Give you an example. I'm an introverted person. People say, I don't believe that. You go on podcasts, you talk all the time. I said, I can do that. I love teaching. I love talking. I love what I do. It's somewhat performative, I guess, right? But you ask me, if uh, do I do well in a crowd? No. Do I like parties? No. Do I like large events? No. Do I go to them? Sure, if I have to. Will I seek them out? No. I was invited to something Saturday night. I was like, no. I just stayed in my hotel room, right? And if I were to go to those events... I get depleted, okay? So after the event, I'll go, but then I will collapse like you've never seen a person collapse before, right? That's my personality. Am I ever going to be the life of the party? No. Am I ever going to want to go to the events? No. That's who I am. Could I shift out of it? Sure. If it's my friend's wedding, not only will I go, I will stay until the last chair is put away because I love that person. So the empathy... It's not a problem for me. I've got plenty of it. So I'll say, my friend needs me to show. I'm not going to say, oh, you're making me come and stay at your wedding. I'm going to go home at nine. Never, ever would I do that because I love the friend. But is that going against my nature? Yes, that empathy lets me do that, right? But my personality is not going to change and never am I spontaneously going to want to be in a crowd. Now, for a narcissistic person, it's their personality too. And their personality is even less likely to ever be be able to change, because narcissism is what we call a rigid, maladaptive personality style. The more maladaptive, meaning that it kind of gets them in trouble, the personality style is, the more rigid and inflexible and unchanging and unchangeable that it is, okay? The narcissistic person does not think that what they're doing is a problem. And in fact, they have a really distorted sense of self-appraisal. They think they're great, Many narcissistic people walk around saying, I'm so empathic. I'm so giving. Aren't I the sweetest person? Like they say that and they're not even self-conscious and they believe it. So it's this delusional lack of insight. They think they're sweet, good, nice people, okay? And so that's where it gets confusing for the other person because they're like, this person thinks they're really nice. Sometimes they are nice they really believe they're nice, maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Maybe I'm reading this person wrong. But that's because the narcissistic person has, again, almost a delusional lack of insight into who they are. If you don't know what needs to be changed, how are you going to change it? Right? They don't think there's anything wrong. So you might say, well, then why would they promise they're going to change if they don't think there's anything to change? Because the spouse or partner might say, I don't like how you text other people. I don't like how you like these people's inappropriate pictures. I don't like that you're always late. I don't like that you choose your friends before me. That's a pretty identifiable thing. Honestly, the narcissistic person doesn't think their behavior is a problem. However, if they want to maintain that relationship with that other person, they're being told, you've got to fix this if I'm going to stay. So they fix what they don't think is broken and when we fix what we don't think is broken, you know what we do? We go right back to the way the behavior always was because they feel entitled to it.
0: The personality thing is so interesting because mm-hmm. you're right. I'm either an introvert or on the scale. That of
1: ambivert like, scale, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Somewhere, because I feel like I can adapt based on the situation. Sure. And some parties I do have fun at. But it, you're right, it is a personality. I've been there. I've had that my whole life. I guess my question for these people personality traits, whether it be introvert or extrovert or narcissists, is that something you are born with or is it about the way that you're raised?
1: So what the research suggests about where narcissism comes is it's very, very strongly suggested that this is shaped. It's a social developmental issue. So what we do know though is when we're born, we're born with something called a temperament. So why some babies are easy, some babies are tough. Some kids are easier, and some kids are really difficult, menacing, attention-seeking, kind of like constantly on the go kids, right? The nicer and sweeter, and frankly, easier a kid is, the more positive regard they get from the world. So that that trait is really shaped in them. Oh, you're so, what a sweetie, what a sweetie, what a sweetie. That child is going to keep doubling down on their sweetiness, but they were kind of born with a sweetness. I don't. I mean, I, sort of an agreeableness is the only way I could put it those kids have a, a, often a better run. Now, what it does mean for those sweet, agreeable kids is that they do often, as adults, learn to capitulate, give in. Even as kids, they might let other kids pick the game, pick the rules. They'll go on, you know, they'll, they'll just always be very cooperative, right, and collaborative. But it is there's some belief that there's a more difficult temperament that narcissistic kids are born into in the world. But that temperament may not necessarily shape into an adult narcissistic style unless that child is chronically invalidated. So stop it, sit down, shut your mouth. Oh my God, you're such a nightmare. And the kid keeps hearing that, that what's happening is that child is then learning that they're they're being shamed. They're being told they're not good. And the core of narcissism isn't pretty. I mean, in many ways, when we really understand where this comes from, it can bring up a real empathy. I can say that as a shrink who's worked with a lot of narcissistic clients, it's actually kind of heartbreaking to see where a lot of these stories started from. However, it still doesn't mean we can sign off on their behavior. And that's the challenge, right? And so that's a lot of narcissistic folks probably had the temperament issue, they had whatever was happening in their environment. It's not unusual for narcissistic people to come out of environments that were kind of chaotic, maybe even sometimes traumatizing. These are kids who are sometimes validated for what they do. They'll, le- they'll learn like, if I do well in the soccer game, if I get the big ballet part, if I look the way they want, if I be what this parent wants, and this is how narcissistic parents can create narcissistic kids, the narcissistic parent really almost makes their love conditional on do what I want. And some of those kids then only develop their exterior and they go into adulthood like that. There's other research suggesting that if you tell a kid uh, that they're special, more special than any other kid, like, yeah, all the kids are nice, but let's face it, you're more special. You're almost growing this entitlement in them, right? You're saying that you're more special than anyone else, these silly rules. Here's where it gets tricky, though. All the stuff I'm describing It can happen. This can happen to kids who don't go on to become narcissistic. In fact, I'd say the vast majority of people, especially trauma, many, many people grow up in traumatic, chaotic, invalidating spaces, and they don't go on to become narcissistic. In fact, they grow up to become anxious, or they devalue themselves, or in fact, they become really vulnerable to other narcissists when they become adults. So although we know all these theoretical models of where narcissism comes from, I always say that narcissism is a story we can tell backwards, but we really can't tell forwards. If you put a kid in front of me, a five-year-old kid, and said, do you think this kid's going to grow up to be a narcissistic adult? i said, I have no idea. I have no idea. But you show me that person when they're 30, we'll probably be able to very clearly understand how that story looped in. What would be very, very, very unusual, I certainly never see it, is a sweet, well-regulated, nice, sweet-tempered kid turning into a narcissistic person. That we almost never see. An example I could give you is let's say a kid grows up with a lot of money. Sometimes those kids are told, listen, the rules don't apply to you. You can have anything you want. You can do whatever you want. And if you had a really, really sweet-tempered kid who grew up like that, if anything, they may grow up with a sense of guilt and shame and maybe even anxiety about their origins. And try to make it right, and we'll be humble and all of that. So that's why I'm saying there's something biological happening, but that's still sort of being discerned. It's it's a, almost like a work in progress. Some people argue there's a genetic component. It's hard to say because narcissistic people do often have narcissistic kids, but you'll look in some families and you'll have one really narcissistic sibling and three that aren't. So whatever that, that, that thing that happens is, that even though these kids had pretty similar upbringings in one family. You'll see that only one or two sibs might end up narcissistic and the others are actually really lovely people.
0: That's so interesting because originally when you were describing the narcissist as very self-centered, I was thinking in my head, I bet there are more only children who are narcissists than children who grew up with a siblings. Because I was fi- feeling like maybe they just get showered with so much attention that now as adults, they expect a lot of attention too, but it's that's not what it is. That's not, what that's not is. what's
1: happening, no. no.
0: So is there is there a way for the parents listening to make sure that they don't raise yep. a narcissist?
1: Absolutely. I mean, listen, here's the thing, is that some of the most important work of parenthood is to raise a child who feels seen and heard and recognized, who feels safe, who has empathy modeled for them and are rewarded for engaging in empathic exchanges, who is able to self-regulate. So in other words, regulate their emotions, regulate, you know, it can't always be about them. If they're having a strong feeling, find appropriate ways of expressing it. Rewarding appropriate emotional expression and creating a space where they feel safe expressing emotions and never pathologizing emotions. So in other words, um, The child is sad, especially a boy. Boys are often having, have their emotions devalued. That boy is crying. Never should they hear, come on, boys don't cry about this. Never. A child's emotion should never, ever be shamed so that they go into adulthood with a full repertoire of acceptable emotion and they know they can express that emotion. The child should not get the sense that they're an extension of their parent and that they need to do what their parent asks. It's interesting, and I'll even say today, ironically, today, I got to. I was talking with my own daughter, and she's a teenager, so she's she's almost fully cooked. We're almost there. What twenty five <laughs> is when the personality stops developing? And she said to me, there was something she thinks she doesn't want to do, and I was like, Oh God, I really. It's a good thing for her to do, and I had to catch myself in real time, and my voice probably sounded strange enough for her to you know catch it. But I was like. Really? You don't want to do that. <laughs> Tell me more. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh man. And she said, Well, this is my thinking on it. And I said, Sweetie, I trust you to listen to yourself. It, it'll evolve, however, it does. And but I want you to, you know, feel that you can honor yourself. That was we're gonna give Dr. Ramani a in the good parenting. And I made that mistake a thousand times when they were younger because. We so, I mean, I think many well-intentioned parents are like, no, 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 you need to do it to this. Do it this way. No, 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 you need to go to this university. No, 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 you need to be in this kind of job. You need to do this kind of activity. You'll be sorry, you'll be sorry, you'll be sorry. That's not the way to go. like Give them all this other good psychological self-appraisal, self-worth building stuff. They will find their way. And maybe their way isn't hugely financially successful or hugely career successful. But damn, if we could raise kids that were happy and know who they are, whatever that looks like, that's the win. They can have healthy relationships, that they genuinely care about other people. You've done it right. And there's that temperament piece, you can't, you gotta work with that. So if you do have a kid with a tough temperament, find the ways to celebrate that child's gifts. Don't yell at them. You know what? This whole idea of children are meant to be seen and not heard. They were meant to be seen. They were meant to be heard. They were meant to be recognized. And Yeah, we need to have guardrails and boundaries, but not as something punitive, but that self awareness of why you can't just interrupt a dinner. We don't shame them, but we can take them aside and talk to them about it and have a meaningful consequence if they keep violating that. There's a way to do this. I made a 10 million mistakes raising my kids. I can tell you that now. So I'm not saying this from, oh, I just got it so right. I'm sharing with you one good parenting moment in the midst of thousands, and it damn near killed me to do that.
0: One of the points you were saying was about empathy and being able to model empathy Mm -hmm. for your children and then also rewarding them when you see that they are being Mm -hmm. empathetic. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. I mean,
1: the best way to model behavior is to do it ourselves. So they see you. Everything from as simple as Making eye contact with a cashier in a store. Hi, how are you today? Thank you so much. I hope you have a good day. Seeing you help someone. Watching them, you maintain healthy, reciprocal relationships and friendships. Your kids are watching everything. They watch how you treat their teacher. They watch how you treat the person who manages the drop-off when you drop them off at school. How you talk to people. How you go through the world. Give them a template of what is good healthy and respectful of other people. That's how we model empathy. We model it with our kids too. You know, when our children are sharing something with us, we might be like, what, what, huh? Like we're not paying attention to them. And we have to be very honest with them and say, hey, right now I can't listen to you, but what you have to say is important. Give. Let me get through making dinner. We can't listen. We can also cannot overindulge our kids and say, "Oh, wonderful kid, I'm always here for you." I'm. We're going to drop what we're doing. I've actually been with adults who literally will drop adult conversation so we can all spend time focusing on their little darling. I'm thinking, what is this kid learning? You know, there's no reason why they couldn't tell the child like. Give me like twenty. We're talking now. Uh, I but what you what you have to say is important, unless it's you know clearly an emergency or something. But I think a lot of parents are overcorrecting right now, and it's their kid show. It's like everything has got to be about their kid, even when other people are being you know, it's throwing off the entire rhythm of a larger group. Like we just like I wouldn't walk into the middle of a group of kids and say, "Hey, everyone, stop your game because I'm here." That's not okay either, right? So we can that. My point is is that. They can see that you have these healthy relationships, but you're also treating them with respect, but it doesn't mean you always have to cater to them. This is not an easy dance. It means you have to be tremendously mindful and you actually do have to value your child. You also can't think somehow your time is so much more important than that theirs, but dinner has to be made. Your child can't make the dinner. That is an important thing that has to happen in this household. So collaboratively in this household, the child does need to understand, give me a minute, we're going to get to that. And then, you know, give your child predictable times. They know they will be valued and seen and all of those things. It happens organically when it comes naturally for a person to do that. I even say to folks, like, you could even do things like, you know, when you have with little kids it might be reading a story or maybe you watch a, sh- a TV show or a movie, especially with younger children stop and say, well, how did you feel? Like, are they good friends? Was he being a good friend? And they'll say, well, no, because he didn't share his cake with him. You know, how did you feel? There's all these ways you can build feeling and talking about empathy. We tend to read the storybook and put it aside, mm-hmm. but the storybook becomes a place to talk about things too. Or the movie. You can even with an older kid, 10, 11, 12, how did that feel for you? How did you feel about that movie? You know, what what would it have been like to be that character maybe a character who didn't have empathy or, or was being hurt by someone who didn't have empathy. Those are all ways that it can happen. And then when you see your child, for example, maybe they're, they're very kind to a younger child or to their sibling, say, so thank, wow, like just wonderful. You know, I'm so, I'm so glad. Kids love praise and that's how they shape It's so I want you to imagine childhood as this massive thing where things are constantly shifting down new paths. They get that praise over and over for a behavior you're going to start shunting them down that empathy is good path. But the number of adults in our society who don't have any, how could they possibly show that to a child?
0: But then how does it happen, though, that one sibling can turn out as a narcissist Mm -hmm. and one can turn out as a not narcissist? There's many reasons for that. I would say that if things are
1: very comparable, so in other words, The parent really was pretty consistent with those kids. That temperament piece matters, that biologically sort of born bit of our personality. Those temperaments may matter. How the kids go through the world can also affect things. You know, by probably even three or four, they're in preschool or whatnot. Those experiences may shape them out differently. Adverse experiences at those times, bullying or, you know, maybe lots of shifts in that environment or something like that, that certainly could shape it out differently. Ability. Like how do they, as they get older, are they getting rewarded for doing well in school or sport or performance or something like that? If one of them keeps having negating experiences, you know, for example, a child who's not a traditional learner and is maybe struggling with reading or some of the other benchmarks, that child might be having such a devaluing experience in school, especially if the school isn't well staffed with teachers who know how to deal with that they may be having these really devaluing experiences. And even if the parents are hitting their marks, they're going to see their siblings getting their awards. And especially if the parents have books everywhere, it's clear that that's what's valued. That could definitely do it. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of it is temperament. And in general, what we tend to see more often, Erica, is a family where things aren't going really well, the parents aren't doing, you know, sometimes it's just sort of, they, parents may be busy. I mean, this isn't even an indictment of parents. We live in tough economic times. Sometimes people are working two, three jobs. I'm like, I'm so exhausted. I just want to keep a roof over our heads. I can't think about all this empathy and all this other stuff. I'm just grateful everyone's home and safe and alive and fed. And I respect that. And I get that. But many children do grow up with some form of adversity, whether it's parents who aren't getting along or financial problems or whatever. The more sensitively temperamented child is going to react to that differently. It could even be gender. The better parent may be, for example, I'm going to use a gendered example. It might be the mother. And as a result, may do better with her daughters than she does her son. Even that could be the kind of thing that could spin it out. But, you know, most people I meet who are narcissistic or dealing with narcissism in a sibling they will say that we're not all narcissistic. It's really my sibling. I have worked with families where all the children were narcissistic, but those are cases of very pathologic parents.
0: Is the way to deal with a narcissist dependent on who is the narcissist? So for example, would you deal with a narcissistic father differently from a friend or a romantic partner? Or is there one way that you recommend dealing with all narcissists?
1: the different kinds of depth and nature of our relationship with narcissistic people can mean that we're going to have different relationships with them and are going to interact with them differently. A narcissistic parent is tricky because they shaped who we become, right? So the, the emotion and the primal nature of that emotion, the anger, the regret, the grief may be far more pronounced than it's going to be with a narcissistic friend, for example, right? But you ask a really interesting question here because in a way, the playbook for how to manage them is similar all the way across. And it's sort of a bit of guidance I give people, sort of a pithy little thing. I say, don't go deep with them. Don't defend yourself with them. Don't engage with them. Don't explain yourself with them and don't personalize their behavior. That works with every narcissistic person. They aren't listening to you. They don't care what you have to say. So getting into an argument with them is a pointless endeavor. You're always going to end up down the same gaslighted black hole every single time. Doesn't matter if it's your father or your friend or your spouse or your boss, it's always going to be the same. So there's a consistency to them, which really means that at the most basic level, the best strategy with a narcissistic person is to disengage. That's the best you got. And that would matter across the board. Now, the ramifications of that disengaging are going to be different depending on the kind of relationship. Disengaging from a boss is going to look very different than disengaging from a parent or a spouse or a partner, that kind of thing.
0: Can we go through those scenarios then? Let's go through disengaging from a boss versus disengaging from a parent.
1: So if you're going to disengage from a boss, it may very well be that as you, it becomes very clear that the picture becomes fuller. That I have a narcissistic boss. Number one, you're going to document the hell out of this. You are going to save every email, every voicemail, every text message, everything. Because if you ever decide that you need to put in an HR thing or whatever it may be, at least you have that. And in most cases, it'll go nowhere. But the fact is that. It's a different circumstance. So it may very well be that you you know that they're probably going to take advantage of you. You know they're not going to see your work. So you communicate, communicate, communicate in a way it's more of a, a cover yourself situation. It's not as emotional in most in most cases, but I know in some workplace situations it can be very emotional. What gets challenging is if a toxic boss is really or narcissistic boss is really abusive. You know, in that sense though, too, it's that don't go deep, don't defend. Don't engage, don't explain, don't personalize. Because people say, why do they keep coming for me? I'm like, we could speculate all day, all night. But the fact is, at some level, they're not a good boss to anyone. They really aren't. And so you, know, you might be in the bad position of being one of their primary direct reports, and so you're getting the worst of it. In a larger employer, it may be clear you'll see a manager just being horrible to lots of people, right? But the disengaging... And taking a long, hard look at the situation. I know people want to hear the story that, isn't there a way I could make this work in the long term? No, there's not. Not in the workplace. More often than not, unless that narcissistic boss gets removed or you work in a large company where maybe you could get moved to another division, I have yet to see someone successfully make a long-term horse race of it. I've certainly seen people figure out the six-month solution. Like, okay, I need to keep it together while I look for another job. But it's tough. You often don't get the reference, you don't get the letter, all the things you would need after spending time in a position. So there's a lot you sacrifice, but you can still disengage. You can get in there, do the best job you can do, document everything you did do. when You never did that, you've got the document. You never did that, and you almost have to over-document. Like you'd have to do things, you hand the report in, You Whatever, your Slack, however you communicate. Just a reminder, I submitted the report today at 4 o'clock. Whatever modes of communication. So they can't turn around and say, you never told me you did it. So you have to almost overdo your job. So it can actually be very inefficient to have a narcissistic boss. Because in order to do it right, you have to overdo it. So they can't come back and, and make accusations against you, which are false. Because then you'll have the documentation. Now, with a narcissistic parent, this is a whole different game, right? This is somebody where, again, it's how they behaved. Their narcissism has harmed you. As an adult, you may be anxious. You may not know your value in the world. You may still feel like you're trying to please this unpleasable parent. Even at 40, you might still feel like, ooh, I hope they like the picture I drew, except now you're 40 saying, ooh, I'm going to tell them I made partner they still don't really care. Or if if their tendency was to criticize you, they might say, ah, took you long enough. Didn't the other guy make it by 37? That's going to be what a narcissistic parent does. So the hurts will often be deeper. And that's why therapy becomes, I think in all of these cases, therapy becomes absolutely essential, whether it's toxic boss or toxic parent, always, you know, it's all about getting that support. But with a parent, disengaging from a parent can bring up feelings of shame, of guilt, of grief, much deeper emotional feelings. And maybe with a boss, it's more like anger, inconvenience. I can't believe I wasted my time in this job. I wasted two years or five years or 10 years in my career. But with a parent, the emotion is going to be a lot more raw and there's going to be much more hurt. So it's just a different
0: journey. I bet like of the people who listen to this, probably like, 95% 95% know a
1: narcissist, 100%, right? I would say 100% of them.
0: I would say, the reason I'm going to say
1: 95% is actually a good number. I do think that there's a 5% out there who lives in that blissed out golden ticket, bought the winning lottery ticket world of they didn't really encounter this. In the modern world, especially people who are hip enough to listen to a podcast, the odds of that are low. Because the more people you meet, probability-wise, the more likely you have a narcissistic person in your life. To have that small a life or that kind of luck is rare. But that 5% is out there. The problem with that 5%, and it is a problem, they're often not able to adequately empathize with people who are going through this thing, oh, come on, how bad can it be? Because they just haven't had, they don't, they haven't had the experience.
0: If you're listening, let me guess, you have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online, and because of that, her identity was stolen. And it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out, just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Are there studies out there of what percentage of the population are narcissists? This is a tough one. No
1: good ones. The number, you know, it's like one of those urban myth alligators in the sewers number that has gotten yeah. out there is somewhere around 20%, okay, who are narcissistic enough for other people to notice it. Now, if we were just talking about narcissistic personality disorder, there's lots of research there, and that number is somewhere between 1% and 5%, depending on whose research study you're looking at. That's what we're talking about here. Straight up narcissism, enough that we can notice it. Again, multiple people have cited the number of 20%. And I, I buy that number, which would mean if you know five people, there's a decent probability one of them's narcissistic.
0: And what about specific professions or areas? Like, are more actors or politicians narcissistic than? Lawyers, or whatever it might be. There's been
1: research showing that actors are more likely to be narcissistic. That's not surprising. CEOs are more likely to be narcissistic. Lawyers are more likely to be narcissistic. Um, and sorry. And <laughs> so okay. it is, and part of it is probably how people train in those professions, what the professions require of the person. Uh, leaders are more narcissistic. People who are drawn into leadership are more likely to be narcissistic. A lot of other healthier people say, eh. The pay, the pay differential isn't worth it to me, and I don't need the power. Person says, I don't need the power, Their odds are they're not narcissistic. Narcissistic people are more financially I'm successful. Like, am
0: I a narcissist As I'm yeah. listening to this? Well, movie, your like, job
1: would— it, so Lawyer, just because,
0: CEO, yeah. leader, somewhat known on social media, am I a narcissist? <laughs> I hope not.
1: You only, only you would know the answer to that, right? So I think what you want to do is you want to make sure you put the syllogism in the right direction, right? You wouldn't want to say, I'm a lawyer, am I narcissistic? In a way, it's it's an odds game, right? So somebody says to me, I'm dating a lawyer, and somebody else told me, I'm dating a teacher, and I was a betting person. I'd bet on the person dating a lawyer that they're dating a narcissist than the person dating a teacher. Jobs like teacher, therapist, social worker, nurse, those are jobs that tend to be higher in agreeableness, which are helping empathy oriented, pro-social, not as sort of validation getting you don't they're not power seeking positions in general. Are there narcissistic teachers? Absolutely. Are there narcissistic therapists? Lots. But from a probability standpoint, the person who'd be drawn to that job is less likely to have this personality style.
0: I think I'm one of those people where I really wish there were a solution for the people who are in relationships with narcissistic people. I wish you could tell me that there is a way to, for them to change and and fix their behaviors because that leads me to believe and tell me if I'm correct in this, that if you are in a relationship with a narcissistic partner as a romantic relationship, your choices are basically to get out or just accept that you will be in a relationship with a narcissistic person. There's no 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 other
1: in-between. The in-between is... If you're going to stay in, you have to recognize the limitations of this relationship. Stop going to it to fulfill needs that you should absolutely expect in a relationship, but this relationship isn't going to deliver. It's like lowering a bucket into a well. You should be able to drop a bucket of water. There are no water in it. So go ahead and drop the bucket. You do what you need to do. You're not going to get water, but you need water. So you're going to have to find someplace else to get water. And that's where... If a person is going and lots of people stay, I'd say 50% of people in narcissistic relationships stay, maybe for reasons of children, of uh, culture, money, because they still think, I love this person. There's things I like about this person. And for that fourth group, it's really painful because it's hard for them to recognize that. Great, but there's always going to be a limited, limited relationship which means in cultivating other spaces and also cultivating yourself. One of the things that a narcissistic relationship almost needs us, the way it works is the narcissistic person almost gobbles up the identity of the other person, right? It's a very parasitic relationship. And so in order for you to stay in that relationship and have the narcissist be comfortable... You have to have given up on yourself. You have to be living in their service. They're never going to meet your needs. They'll resent your needs. They'll resent what you want if it's separate from what they want. If you're on the same page, it'll feel like great until the day you're not on the same page as them, which is the day that's bound to happen at some point. So it's really about giving yourself a space in your life where you do get to be you. That might be at work, that might be in a hobby, that might be in your spiritual community, that might be with friends, and cultivate those friendships. Because if you're in a narcissistic relationship, you need social support. You need spaces that are not gaslighted, that are mutual, that are growth-oriented with people who see you. And people say, I don't like this. You're telling me, in order to stay in my relationship with a narcissist, I kind of can't get those needs met in the relationship? Yep. And that also means that if you're having a good day, maybe you're having a good week, maybe you're even having a good six months because their job is going great and they're killing it at work and they're making the money and they're getting the power and they're on top of the world. It's going to be a nice ride for you too until your life might start going better or until they don't get another promotion. And then it's all going to fall apart. You're going to say, but, but we've built all this great life together. Mm-mm-mm, you're not enough for them. Nothing is enough for them. And so, no, it's a terrible feeling, but all is not lost. I think that you have to know what you're dealing with. This is a nightmare if you're going in there thinking this is a normal relationship. Why don't they see me? Why don't they love me? Why don't they care for me? If you think that's possible, you'll drive yourself mad. But if you re- recognize this is limited. And so I get my loud nights of laughter and silliness with my friends. I can't do that with him. Or I can talk about my aspirations and things I'm interested in with my friends, but not with her. You recognize that. Is there grief around that? Absolutely. Is it perfect? No. But that's how you stay. And some people say, I'm going to stay till the kids are 18 and then I'm out. That's, I get that. I understand that. Some people will stay to a point where it gets tricky is people say, oh, I want to grow old with someone. I'll say, why do you want to grow old with someone? Well, when I'm older, I want someone to talk to. Okay, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the real risk is if you think they're going to take care of you. I have yet to meet the narcissistic person who's a good caregiver to be a caregiver, so self-sacrificial. It, is, it feels very one-sided. It is exhausting. And for a narcissistic person, that's just way too inconvenient. So many people have stuck out these marriages thinking, well, at least I have someone who'll help me out when I'm older. And then they do have that health crisis. And that narcissistic person's just not interested. And also, this is kind of why I hung in there. And so it's not pretty. It's really not. And As a therapist, I've helped many people continue staying in one of these relationships. And honestly, it becomes a paradoxical intervention because over time, once they realize how impoverished this relationship is emotionally, they then get to a place where they slowly dismantle it and get out.
0: So I know your book is called, Should I Stay or Should I Go? In this context of, should I stay in this narcissistic relationship? So if someone were to come and ask you, I'm in this relationship with a narcissist. Should I stay or should I go? What questions are you asking them to decide?
1: Tell me about the relationship. Tell me about the patterns in the relationship. Tell me how you've been coping with them. Tell me how this relationship has affected you. How do you feel about which way you want to proceed? It is not my place to have an agenda for anyone. That's that's very, very much been always my mission in this work. Are most people going to be better off if narcissistic people aren't in their life? Absolutely, right? There's no two ways about it. However, that's not always a path available. And for some people, they'll say, even though I know life could be so much potentially better without this person in it, the amount of sacrifice having them out of my life would require would bring up a whole new set of problems. And it may not even just be practical problems. It may be guilt. It may be grief. It may be fear of regret. It might mean that they might lose other family members in that transaction. That's why I'm saying it's almost like, how do you think about how I can make this work without losing myself? So a person might say, I have a partner who keeps cheating on me, and yet I also know that If I leave before all the kids are 18, it's not going to be good for them to have this shared custody. So we'll talk about well, what would another 12 years in this relationship feel like? How can we help you through this? So it's, but I'll tell you is by almost making it a mental experiment or a thought experiment, people then start to realize like, this isn't what I want. This isn't enough. And a lot will get out, but a lot won't. So even after having the conversations, people will say, I'm staying but I'm no longer staying foolish or I'm no longer staying unseeing to what this is. I'm staying and I'm seeing it and it stinks, but I've really, really learned that I am not the invaluable, bad, foolish person that this narcissistic person keeps telling me. They start slowly finding their voice. It happens. I Over the weekend, I was um, speaking at a conference in Washington, D.C., The audience was therapists, but a lot of those therapists had lived experience. And in the time after the talk, and then I did a book signing, multiple people came up to me and said, after 30 years, I left. After 35 years, I left. And my life is so much lighter and better. But my God, those first two years were tough. And so these are people who are saying, ultimately, it was a win. But when I was in the middle of it, it was a nightmare.
0: And I think the hardest thing is when you're realizing someone is a narcissist, if it's a friend or someone that you don't have that many ties with, it's pretty easy to cut off. I've, I've cut off friends who I've realized were narcissists. There isn't much backlash. There isn't much consequence to my life by doing that. But you're so right. When you're entangled in so many things, including possibly kids, finances, all of these things, it becomes so much harder. I guess, what is the consequence of staying The consequence of staying, it depends on how you stay. If you
1: stay with your eyes wide open, it still takes a toll on you. I don't care how much not going deep and realistic expectations, and something I call radical acceptance, which to me the core of healing in these relationships is this is not going to change. Being in the presence of someone who's invalidating you, manipulating you, even if they're not successfully manipulating you, gaslighting you, invalidating you, dismissing you, screaming at you, that takes a toll on you, right? You don't need to smoke the cigarette for it to make you sick. As long as the smoke's around, you're going to get sick too. It's like thats You're still being around that isn't good and it does bring up feelings of grief and awful often self devaluation like what am I doing? Why am I sitting in this? And that's why I do a lot of calibration work with people saying like okay, you know there is a reason you're here right? There is this is part of you know you're aware. Some people will even say, I love this person, and I say that doesn't make and they'll say what kind of what am I a masochist? No, you love them. There's a history here. There are some shared interests here. There have been some shared experiences here. This isn't about saying you don't love them because many, many people out there love the narcissistic person in their life, but it is an unhealthy relationship by definition. So the key then becomes no one in the world, not me, not you, not anyone, can tell someone to stop loving someone. But we can engage in in the world of public health. It's called harm reduction. But we can find a way to be in these relationships in a way where you're not constantly, constantly being devalued and dismissed. Therapy is a big part of this. Working with a therapist who's able to understand what these relationships are about and hold space for you in a way where you do have that consistent, safe place to say, I'm so conflicted. I love them. I hate them. I don't know what to do. I wish I was out of it. I don't want to be out of it. Because your friends are going to get burnt out on this after a while. Mm -hmm. They really are. So you need someone who is trained to hear this.
0: So how can you tell the difference? Where is that line between someone who wants to help manage the family finances versus someone who wants to control the finances because they are a narcissist?
1: When a person is in a relationship with somebody and may bring more financial expertise or interest and they want to support the family's finances, you'll see someone who's transparent they'll say hey like they might even uh, say we should uh, we should talk about budgets from time to time we should let me show you what the investments look like they'll give all the login information to the other person so they can check that money anytime they, they want to know where things are at. They will talk collaboratively about, like, for example, if there's a decision about somebody maybe taking a break from work or buying a car or any of those things, that will be a conversation and not a, we can't afford this with no access. But it really comes down to transparency. If it's indeed a genuine desire to make sure that the family's finances are run well and that you're on the same page and it's growth-oriented and so that the family or the couple can be their very best, it will be transparent. If there is a sense of you don't need to know this, don't bother your pretty little head with this, that's a problem. You don't have the logins, that's a problem.
0: And I've also seen from people who have written into me that sometimes these, what I assume would be narcissists, they want to control what you spend, but you cannot control what they're spending on. So for example, if you go spend $500 on something that you've wanted, it is a huge deal. But if they go spend $500 however they want, it's fine, and you should absolutely not say anything about it.
1: Narcissistic relationships are, by definition, always governed by hypocrisy. The narcissistic person always has one set of rules for themselves and another set of rules for everybody else. And it's very self-serving. They're going to have rules for themselves that work for them, right? And they'll often manipulate it into, well, I make more money than you, or I this than you, or I, you know, I, whatever. They'll come up with a justification. They're masters of rationalization. So they will come up with some sort of story on why this is. But people will, I mean, for example... It's not unusual in a narcissistic relationship that the credit card, obviously the credit card bills and accounts are all overseen by the narcissistic person who then has, that, um, has the alert. So they can even see if you've gone to a coffee shop and spent $4 on a coffee and will have no problem saying, oh, must be nice to just sort of while away your afternoon going and spending this money at the coffee shop. So you really feel like you're in this, in this state of surveillance. And that's not unusual from a financial perspective in these relationships, exactly what you said. Your spending is always being scrutinized. You're not allowed to scrutinize their spending. And it can really become a problem if indeed the narcissistic person is making more money because then the other person in the relationship often feels relatively sort of disempowered and make no mistake That narcissistic person is spending all kinds of money that the other person in the relationship doesn't know about.
0: Is there anything else connected to narcissists and money that we should be aware of? I would say to
1: anybody in a relationship, narcissism or no narcissism, do not ever, ever let another person commandeer the finances, especially for women. Many women have gotten themselves into absolute peril because they believed that this partner was managing the finances. Sometimes even when the woman was making more money. This isn't your standard trope of man works and woman doesn't. Never, ever, ever take your eye off the ball of finances. That, again, I can't impress, put enough, you know, sort of a point on that. Now in a narcissistic relationship, it could be literal life or death for you to do that. If you're in a relationship with someone who's saying, you don't need to know that. You don't need these logins. You want to take a long, hard look at that relationship. I also think everyone should maintain some piece of money that is their own. You know, there may be one joint account, but there has to be some agreement on separate accounts. If somebody is really, really pushing back on that, take a step back and wonder what's happening. And so these are financial hygiene matters that can be addressed early in a relationship. You know, listen, I've seen almost every variant of this. I've seen people who are in relationships with narcissistic people, where the narcissistic person's paid for everything. That's a little bit of a dangerous precedent too, because it can foster the sense of beholdenness. Then I've seen situations where the narcissistic person was almost obsessed with, how do we call it, they used to call it going Dutch, like everything being split even, even when the narcissistic person was spending more money. It's a very interesting, like there's a subset of narcissistic people who are bizarrely obsessed with acquiring money. So they resent a relationship as being a place where they're draining money. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So somebody's got a new partner, like, now I'm supposed to go out for dinner with this person. I'm supposed to buy them a birthday present. And all they can do is think about their investments, their crypto, their real estate. So the idea of even spending $100 on a dinner, they resent that because it's stopping their financial growth. To which you're thinking, why are you even in a relationship? But the folks who have that same sort of obsessive, like, The money has to be controlled in a certain way or often obsessive in other areas. I have to have a partner. I have to have a spouse. Like they're very formulaic. And that formulaicness though means everything in life is a balance sheet to them. And they don't like that they may have to spend more. Why should I have to buy your this? Why should I have to pay for the plane tickets? Why should I? Why should I? They almost sound like whiny little kids. Even if they have vastly more money, that kind of obsessive zeal around money is also problematic. And also say in some cases, it's less often because they are so controlling, but in those more immature narcissistic folks, emotionally immature, you'll see a carelessness with money. They'll just spend money like it goes to their hands. We can do this, let's do that. And they'll falsely, future-fakedly, if you will, reassure the person, oh, I got this covered, I got this covered. And then one day the person will lift their head and say, oh my goodness, we're in a mountain of debt. Because narcissistic people are not only so entitled, but they're so grandiose, and they're generally careless people, not all of them have their eye on a long-term prize. It's almost as though, in a grandiose way, everything's going to work its way out. And they can really, really then back the entire family into a financial disaster, buying more house than they can afford, using credit cards to buy luxury products, buying more car than they can afford, and just assuming magically somehow it's all going to work its way out.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. I'm trying to picture the narcissist. Like, I'm all about data, so I really want to understand, first of all, are more men narcissists than women? So it depends on what form of narcissism you're
1: talking about. When we talk about the sort of traditional conception of grandiose narcissism, the arrogant, pretentious, bragging, controlling, narcissistic person, that's more men. When we talk about malignant narcissism, not only all that grandiosity, but also much more manipulative, exploitative, um, cruel, controlling, that's more men. When we talk about a form of narcissism called vulnerable narcissism, which is characterized by more negative moods, anxiety, social anxiety, a sense of resentfulness and feeling like the person always has grievances and always feels like a victim, similar between men and women. So it depends on the form of narcissism you're talking about. But in those big, forward-facing, larger-than-life, arrogant, controlling narcissistic folks, it's definitely, that's a higher rate in men than women.
0: So if a person does stay in one of these narcissistic relationships, can you give us a technique on how they can survive?
1: So in my book, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, I actually have this kind of framework, if you will, where I tell people, it's called the sort of the good, bad, and the indifferent exercise. You cannot share good information, good news. Like if you got a promotion or you won a prize or someone gave you a compliment, don't let the narcissistic person be the first person you share that with. Because more often than not, they'll diminish it. Ugh, what's wrong with you that you care about a compliment or, oh, a promotion, well, does it really pay more money? Or you won that award, like, it seems like they just rotate that around your place. They will diminish it so much that it takes all the wind out of your sails right from the beginning. So I tell folks, when you have good news, share it with the people who you know will be your cheerleaders and your supporters. Always take it to them first. That could be friends, that might be colleagues, whoever it is in your life, family members. And only after you do that, take it to the narcissist. Because then you would have sort of basked in its glow. And then when the narcissist is a downer, You fast in the glow and whatever. In fact, some people will say, I share it with everyone even on social media, but then the narcissist will get their nose bent out of shape because they'll say, hey, how come you told everyone there? Why did not you tell me first? So tell it in your circles before you go public, public, throw them a bone. Know they're going to not be happy for you, but now you're prepared. Mm -hmm. Bad news. You don't want to take that to them first either. Bad news could be anything from factually bad news, Layoff at work, um, the appliance, the dishwasher is broken. It could be health problems you're facing. You got bad news at a doctor's office, something changed in the schedule that's going to create a problem in your lives. Because narcissistic people don't like being inconvenienced, they don't like facing any form of disappointment or stress, your bad news is likely throwing something into the works that's making things more difficult. They don't like that. It cuts away at their sense of grandiosity, entitlement. I, sh- I deserve a life where nothing goes wrong kind of thing. So take it to places where you actually can do some, you get support. Like let's say you get bad medical news. You don't want someone saying, oh God, what does this mean for me? You want someone saying, are you okay? How can I help? Do you want to talk about it? Ta- or if it's something that needs a solution, take it to the people who will be part of that solution. So if you learn, for example, your kid's school is going to close for three days, go to the people who might be the ones who will say, I got you. I can cover them. And you know what? You take my kids for the weekend. And you know, So make your arrangements because the narcissistic person will say, okay, not my problem. I'm not taking time off from work. So you would have worked the problem. After, at some point, they may need to know the dishwasher's broken, but by then you may have sort of worked out what the options are. Say, I already called the repair place. They said to fix it's going to be 400 A new one's going to cost 900 Instead of them saying, what are we supposed to do? Blah, blah, blah. This is your fault for stacking it wrong. They're still going to throw a tantrum, but you may feel a little bit more solid in your position. So if you can't share good news and you can't share bad news, people often think, what am I supposed to share? All the indifferent stuff. The weather... <laughs> is the number one, okay? So weather gives you a lot to talk about. Can you believe how much it's raining here in Los Angeles? Or, gosh, it's been a real hot. Do you know that today is the hottest day for seven years? Weather gets you so much. You know, especially if it's, oh, gosh, where your mom lives, it's really cold. You could get, weather buys you mileage, okay? Beyond weather, what are other things you can talk about? Things that have no significant emotional valence, like, the neighbors put new light fixtures on the posts outside their house. Or did you hear that the, they're going to make that into a different grocery store down the hill? It's enough to keep conversation going because some people say, otherwise I don't want to be sort of bumping around the house having no conversation. This gives you things to talk about. And one thing I've even challenged people to do in the exercise in the book is write some of those topics down ahead of time so you're prepared, whether the new grocery store the new light fixture, new people are moving into that house, whatever it may be, neutral, neutral, neutral topics. And that can actually be enough. You'd be amazed at how much of our conversation with someone we live with is filler, right? But view the neutral stuff as the good filler and don't go into those most sensitive topics unless you absolutely have to.
0: As I'm listening, I feel so sad. It is
1: sad. And I have to tell you, I've worked with many clients who've said, this isn't a relationship. Yeah. To which I say it wasn't. It never really was. And the difference is now, at least this these techniques will keep you from being so verbally abused. And even if you get out, it's heartbreaking. It's a devastating, painful experience when you leave these. They ain't gonna let you go quietly. They're often gonna really be manipulative and cruel even if you leave. So I think for any human being out there, having a healthy social network is everything, whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be 50 people. Honestly, if you have two, three, four people that are your go-tos, that are those safe, soft places to land, that is an incredibly important psychological resource. And equally important is that you are that for somebody else.
0: One question that this also brings up now because I was all besides the catfishing incident with a separate person, I was in a long-term relationship with a narcissist. Is there something about me or is there something about people who end up in relationships with narcissists, do we care too much about what the other person thinks? Or like, is there something I could have fixed about myself to not end up in a relationship with a narcissist?
1: I would argue no. It's almost beyond the scope of just, it was almost its own episode or what are all the things that make a person more, sort of what are our backstories that make us more vulnerable to entering into a narcissistic relationship? And those things are things that are good about us and things that are also painful about us. Having had narcissistic parent or parents makes you more vulnerable. Having a history of trauma makes you more vulnerable. Being a rescuer or a people pleaser makes you more vulnerable. Being an optimist makes you more vulnerable. Those are not necessarily viewed to be bad things in a person, right? But some of those things like having a history of trauma are difficult things. Being in a period of transition makes you vulnerable because especially if you're in a new city or coming out of a relationship or coming out of a job or something, you might just sort of want this You want this to be something maybe that it really isn't. So all of these various kinds of things that might be happening in our life, maybe from the past, maybe even presently, all matter. Our personalities matter too. So a lady out there named Sandra Brown, who's a therapist, and she talks about this idea of how having an agreeable personality makes you much more vulnerable to getting into a narcissistic relationship. Agreeable people are the best. They are honest and Humble and empathic and helpful and cooperative and care about things being balanced and equal, they also avoid conflict, so it's often sadly and easy to railroad agreeable folks, but it's a wonderful personality style. Narcissistic people like these agreeable people because they're a great source of narcissistic supply. They're full of praise and "You're great, and I think you're so nice," and they're very forgiving. So as the narcissistic person commits transgression after transgression, betrayal after betrayal, an agreeable person is far more likely to put up with their stuff. But I would say that there's nothing wrong that needs to be fixed. What are people supposed to go out there and become less agreeable? Because the fact of the matter is a narcissistic person is going to go after anyone they think is a good source of supply could be that you're attractive. could be that you have high social status, that you have a lot of money, that you have a lot of power, that you have fame. Whatever the thing is that they think is a desirable attribute, they will come at. The agreeableness to me is what gets people stuck. You know, so I don't even know that they go after warm people. I think they go after people that attract them how they attract them. The agreeable people are the ones who can't get themselves out of the mess.
0: Imagine that someone you care deeply about They don't realize it yet, but you realize they're in a relationship with a narcissist. What do you say or do?
1: You do not hit them over the head with it. You do not roll up to them and say, hey, your new boyfriend is a narcissist. Absolutely not. Just the same way if you think your friend's an alcoholic, you don't go up to them and say, hey, I think you're an alcoholic. They're either going to say a bunch of obscenities to you or say, I don't drink that much and stop. You know, what is your problem? This is you. That's what's going to happen. It's the same thing that will happen here. So, if you notice a friend is in a relationship where they're being consistently treated badly or treated in a way that you find uncomfortable or you just are worried about them, just let them know that. Say, hey, how are you doing? And your friend will say, how are you doing? Say, you know, I, listen, I love you. I care about you. That dinner party the other night when he talked to you that way, I felt uncomfortable. I just wanted to check in and make sure you're okay. Odds are if your friend doesn't see it, Nine times out of 10, they're going to say, no, like you're totally misreading it. But it's, you're do, you've done something different here. You've planted a seed. Part of them knew it wasn't okay. And while they may not own up to it with you, they may think, I did read that okay. They're not going to tell you. But what you've done there is said, let them know, listen, I'm always here no matter what. I love you. Whatever makes you happy, I want you to be happy. And I just was worried. So you're not laying out an agenda, you're not saying run away, you're saying though I'm here. That seed you plant may not yield anything for three months, six months, maybe even years. But this idea, uh, again, I I do want to make very clear, I'm not talking about a situation where someone's being physically harmed or abused or something like that. I'm really talking about this sort of like that moderate level of narcissistic abuse where it's just, it's not cool, it doesn't look good. If it keeps going on, you might even want to go a bridge further down the road, maybe some weeks or months down the road, and they might say, hey, you want to go with us for dinner? And you might say, no, I love you. I'm really uncomfortable with how he acts. I want to see you, though. Can, you, can we find a time, maybe we just have lunch together? Now you're saying, you do you, but I am not putting myself in here. Now you're kind of upping the volume on this, like, this is so unhealthy. I don't want to see it. Your friend may distance. May, but you've now planted yet another seed. These little seeds you plant are saying, I see this, I love you, I'm here. This, however, is a little uncomfortable for me. I'm not enjoying this. And so you're also showing how a boundary gets set. But what you never do is say, They're a narcissist, here's a video. Mm-hmm. It's a process, it's a process of unfolding because your friend may be very trauma bonded. They may be sort of consciously not seeing what's happening. They may be. Not so consciously, not seeing what's happening because of their own history. And I am not a fan of when people say, I'm not hanging out with you anymore if you, you're with this person, because you've now isolated them further. I do think it's okay to say, though, I, I can't. I This I can't do. It is too painful for me to watch this. I love you too much. I just can't do it. I will see you the day before. I will see you the day after. I will see you for lunch. I'll even help you run the errands for your party. But this is hard for me. And listen, could it end up killing the friendship? Potentially. But then you also have to ask yourself, how much do you really want to have a front row seat at this? Usually it's not that bad in these moderate narcissistic relationships. You are letting people know. Even if you say, mm, that wasn't okay. Or you might even say like, oh, that wasn't your reality. That's not how I heard that. I was there when you said that. You said this. And they will say, really? Because they told me, I, no, I was there. I heard it. Those little ungaslighting moments can also be a game changer. It's a slow game. It's a slow game.
0: I imagine other people are listening to this experiencing what I'm experiencing, but I think my whole body is kind of it's like getting warm but also shivers at the same time because so much of what you're saying, it relates so much to my my past life and I remember friends specifically when I was in that relationship with a narcissist. I remember some friends they were so sick of the back and forth, the bouncing back, the breakups, the get back together, that they had that same conversation with me that Erica, I love you, but I'm not going to be a part of this. I don't want to be be a part of this. So yeah.
1: It, but it's also I say to be a good friend to say, I can't watch these interactions. I'm here. I will get together with you a weird time. I'll I'll go to the grocery store with you if that's how I get to see you. Cause I do, I love our time together. I just can't watch someone I care about be treated like this. That's a super strong statement.
0: Thank you so much for this. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Dr. Romney Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away from this podcast episode being able to say, Dr. Romney taught me this?
1: Dr. Romney taught me that the best anti-narcissism tool out there is that I lean into my whole authentic self and recognize that my experience, and my perceptions are valid. When you can have that autonomy within yourself, you're less likely to fall into the, the trap and the chasm of narcissistic relationships.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.